Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. As the name suggests, we normally talk to plant breeders, but from time to time we take a little sidestep into adjacent areas to plant breeding, which are critical in the pursuit of new and improved varieties. So in this episode, I talked to Dr. Mike Jackson about his long and varied career in genetic resources management, a critical resource for plant breeders. We get into what gene banks are, why we need them, how they operate, and crucially, how they're funded. Mike started his career working at the International Potato Centre in Peru, became a lecturer in genetic resources at the University of Birmingham, and spent 20 years working with genetic resources at the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines. He has a wealth of insights to share, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. So, Dr. Mike Jackson, thank you very much for joining us on Plant Breeding Stories. A good place to start would be to ask you to introduce yourself. Hello, Hannah. Nice to meet you. Um, I've originally come from Cheshire, but I grew up on the edge of the glorious North Staffordshire Moorlands and spent uh, many hours as I was growing up walking over those moorlands birdwatching. And for quite a long time, I had an idea that I'd like to get into ornithology as a career. And as I went through school, and I I didn't actually study biology until uh, I went into A-levels, and plants just grabbed me. Plants as a career grabbed my attention more. I saw more opportunities. So as I understand it, you did an undergraduate degree at Southampton in botany and geography, and then you applied to study an MSc at Birmingham University on a new course in genetic resources. But you mentioned that you didn't quite achieve the marks you needed for admission, and yet you did study there. So how did that come about? But I must have made some sort of impression on the course leader, Professor Jack Hawkes, who was one of the leading lights in the genetic resources conservation movement of the 1960s and 1970s. Because he said, well, that doesn't matter. I will try and find you a grant. And just before the course was due to start in September 1970, he phoned me up and said, I've got a grant, it's not a huge amount of money, but it'll keep you alive and it will pay your tuition fees. Genetic resources was a very new concept and an emerging field at the time. Um, So can you tell me what it is and how it relates to plant breeding? Well, modern plant breeding has really only been in existence maybe for 150 years. But in order for plant breeders to make progress, they need sources of genetic variation either to increase yields, increase productivity, bring in resistance to a pest or a disease. And whether they are old varieties, farmer varieties that farmers have been growing for millennia or wild species, these are the genetic resources that have become so critical for the survival of crop agriculture around the world. And since the 1960s, there was a recognition 
that unless something was done to save these genetic resources, the new varieties that were being developed as part of the green revolution thrust at that time, the new varieties were likely to be adopted and farmers would stop growing their old varieties. And while we're laying the foundations, I wanted to ask about the terminologies around genetic resources like gene bank, germplasm collection, seed bank, etc. Can you tell me what these terms mean or how they're different from each other? Um, They're essentially the same. The gene bank is both the physical structure and the collection of material within it. Uh, A seed bank is a particular type of gene bank because not all gene banks have plants in them that reproduce by seed. So, for instance, at the International Potato Centre in Peru, there is a potato gene bank that is maintained in the field. Every year, the tubers are planted and harvested and stored over and replanted. There are some crops that are maintained entirely in the field, and we refer to those as field gene banks. So uh, a gene bank is a generic term for a a collection of, of plants that is being conserved for genetic resources purposes. So you were studying your MSc at Birmingham under Professor Jack Hawkes, but then you moved to Peru. So tell me how that happened. Since I'd been a, a young boy, I'd always wanted to travel. Uh, I had used to spend a lot of time poring over atlases, and I particularly wanted to go to South America. And the continent of South America just fascinated me. And, and I thought, well, if I can get there one day, that would be, would be fabulous. Anyway, Jack convinced FAO and others that a course was needed to train professionals in the emerging field of genetic resources conservation so that the plans that he and other experts had put together um, could be brought to fruition. Jack was also uh, one of the world's leading potato taxonomists. And in December 1970, he and his Danish colleague had an expedition to Bolivia. And they sought the support of the International Potato Centre. Jack returned from Bolivia in February 1971. And within, I think, almost the same day that he got back, he phoned me at my apartment. And he said, there's a job going in Peru in September for one year. Are you interested? I said, when can I have the ticket? (laughs) Am I ever? (laughs) And the director general of the newly founded International Potato Center was wanting to send one of his Peruvian staff to Birmingham for training and was looking for somebody who could fill in the gap, as it were, for a year. My departure for Peru actually got delayed 15 months. I didn't actually land in Peru until the beginning of January 1973. But by that time, I had begun a PhD under Jack's supervision and was able to continue that work in Peru while at the same time working for the centre for things that they wanted me to do, go around Peru collecting potatoes, which was a fantastic opportunity for somebody who was only just 24 years old. That sounds like an amazing opportunity and and the right time of life, you know, to be to be disappearing off to the other side of the world on such an adventure. It was. <laughs> if I understand correctly, there's a particularly diverse set of of land races or or ancestors in potatoes as consumers of the humble spud you could be forgiven for not appreciating that is is am i correct oh yeah there must be 4 or 5000 different varieties of potato 
you know, every shape, size and colour you can imagine and the most exquisite flavours as well. So you were there for how long? How long were you in Peru for? I was only in Peru for a little under three years, but I was with the International Potato Centre, uh, which is known by its Spanish acronym, CIP. So I was actually with them for eight and a half years because I completed that stint of three years in, in Peru, completed my PhD and come back to the UK presented by thesis, then went back to Lima and almost immediately was told to go to Costa Rica for five years and set up a regional sub-office to look at the adaptation of the potato to the lowland tropics. I take it your Spanish was pretty good by this point. By the time I left Costa Rica, it was was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) So I moved completely away from my other work on genetic resources at that time and went much more directly into potato agriculture, support to national programs uh, throughout the region because I was working in the region from Mexico down to Panama and out into the Caribbean in support of national potato programs. And so that was was also a great opportunity to do something different, to, to learn about how to grow a crop. And then you came back to the UK and went into academia. And that was before you went to IRI, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Um, At the end of 1980, I became aware that a new lectureship in genetic resources was going to be advertised. Was that the only one in the UK at the time? Yes, in fact, it was the only one, the only course that ever really succeeded worldwide. All right, okay. So I threw my hat in the ring and I was offered the, the position. And there I remained for 10 years. And you mentioned that the genetic resources course no longer runs. I think you said it it stopped in 2004. So I'm curious why that would be the case, because there is still a need and perhaps in many ways, an even more pressing need now to conserve genetic resources. Well, I mean, obviously, hundreds of professionals from around the world were trained. The course ran its natural life, as it were, within the department. There was no longer the demand coming in or the financial support to bring students in or provide the resources within the School of Biosciences. And perhaps just, uh, I suppose, a question, a question dressed up as speculation, perhaps there's um, more centres of expertise around the world, more gene banks, more germplasm collections in different locations than there were in the 1960s? That's certainly the case. Um, Of course, at Birmingham, we didn't have a gene bank, but we did have people who had expertise in genetic resources conservation and the fields uh, around it. And of course, in those days, IBPGR, the International Board, had grown out of and was still based within the Food and Agriculture Organization headquarters in Rome. So let's leap forward then to the work that you did at IRI, because you were with IRI for many years, weren't you, in different um, roles. So maybe let's start with, tell me a little bit about the International Rice Research Centre. What what do they do? And then then we can talk about the Genetic Resources Centre within that. IRI was the first of the international centres to be founded in 1960. So it's just celebrated 60 years. It works exclusively on rice and ensuring that rice, the world's most important food crop, is available to all who need it to increase the productivity, to increase the availability, to produce varieties that are more productive, disease resistant, to understand the 
agricultural systems and the people uh, within those systems. It produced the first of the short strawed rices in the mid 1960s with the release of a variety called IR8, which was a cross between a short strawed variety from Taiwan and a long strawed variety from Indonesia. And essentially, that was the launch of years, decades of plant breeding at the Institute and the release of variety after variety. Um, some varieties have, have been grown over millions of hectares. And that in itself is a, uh, a cause for concern in that farmers who make their, their decisions, they're not forced to make their decisions to adopt a new variety and perhaps stop growing their old varieties. And therefore, you get what we call genetic loss or genetic erosion and that's where the people like me in a gene bank come in what can we do to ensure that these varieties are not lost forever the the, the gene bank at Erie is one of the oldest and one of the largest gene banks in its own right and certainly for rice is the largest most genetically diverse and most important gene bank worldwide right and, and that begs the an interesting question. If you have all these different varieties of rice in one location, how do you maintain the distinct identity of all those varieties? How do you avoid there being genetic mixing over time? You know, clearly if it's seeds in a jar in a vault somewhere, you can see how that's going to stay preserved for as long as those those seeds become viable. But once you have live plants or your um, producing new seeds, there is always that risk. So tell me a little bit about that. Okay, the, the, the gene bank has currently a little over 132,000 samples. I couldn't tell you how many distinct varieties that encompasses, but it must be at least half and probably three quarters are unique varieties. And to some extent, although it's a huge gene bank, to some extent, conserving rice was relatively straightforward because rice is a self-fertilizing inbreeding plant. There is sometimes, under the right environmental conditions, opportunities for outcrossing, but predominantly rice is inbreeding. So it's easier for some crops than for others. <laughs> I'm glad I was not faced with the challenges that my friend and uh, colleague uh, uh, Dr. Dave Astley, who was head of the Vegetable Gene Bank at uh, Wellsbourne, which is now the University of Warwick, had, because he was working on brassicas, and they had to be grown in isolation cages and bringing in insects to pollinate them. It's, I didn't have any of that. Ah, yes, pollination control tents. We know lots about that at PBS. It was just the scale. If you can imagine thousands of varieties having to be planted out each year, their identity maintained in the field, harvested carefully, uh, packaged and cleaned and sorted, and all the all the things that go around taking a seed to a plant to a seed and back into a gene bank, and all the risk of human error that could crop it crop up in that process. Yes, and one of the reasons that a change in leadership of the gene bank at Erie was to bring in somebody who would, as it were, revitalize and bring those operations up to the, the 21st century. Almost everything that we did had to be looked at to make sure that we were able to reach internationally agreed and acceptable standards of gene bank. 
So that was a big piece of your work there then was just getting the processes, the operations really nailed down so that that was stayed fit. We built a data management system, but we had some fundamental issues where different elements of the collection had the same types of data, but they'd been coded in different ways. Ah, right. So we then had to do, as you can imagine, a lot of configurations or reconfigurations to bring everything into one unity, as it were. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. So in a gene bank, you have a living, well, quite literally a living, breathing collection to which presumably varieties are added and resources are taken out to be used for breeding programs and other purposes. So can you tell me how that's managed? Where do the additions come from and who's using them and so on? National entities donate material to the gene bank. For them, it's a safety duplication as well. But in the mid-1990s, I was fortunate to raise a considerable sum of money from the Swiss government to do three things. One was to try and complete the collection of germplasm in areas that had been underexplored until that date. Um, Second was to research this whole area of on-farm conservation and what it meant in terms of the genetic integrity of crops long-term. And thirdly, to provide training for professionals in national programs, primarily in Asia, but elsewhere. And we collected in over 20 countries alongside partners from the national programs, the most important component being from the Lao People's Democratic Republic, Laos. That had never been collected. We placed a member of staff there because we had a, the Institute had another country-based program. We stayed there for five years and collected nearly 14,000 samples of rice. It actually became probably one of the most diverse and, and largest components of the whole gene bank collection. Wow. Incredible, fascinating range of, of diversity. But we also collected in Africa, mainly wild species, and some in, in South and Central America, again, uh, wild species. Is there any particular common thread to where these hotspots of diversity are? You mentioned Laos, you know, Africa, but I guess that's also localised. Is, is there any common thread to that? I mean, for eastern India, for instance, in, in, in an area that grows rice under what, what's known as rain-fed lowland rice, it's, it's in puddled water, but the, the, the supply of water is through rainfall. So in eastern India, many farmers are still growing the varieties that their families have been growing for generations. And you find those pockets all over all over Asia. And when we set up the program in 95 to, to collect, we, we looked very carefully at the records of what we had in the gene bank from these different countries and were able to identify areas that were underrepresented. And they had not been visited for a whole slew of reasons. I mean, some places have had civil conflicts and it might have been difficult to, to travel around anyway. And so this was an opportunity uh, for bringing all these countries together with a common purpose to save their national germplasm. So 
After the collections were made, the material was essentially divided with half remaining in a national facility and half going to Erie and added to the International Rice Gene Bank collection. At the time that I joined Erie, the politics of germplasm were changing. And in fact, uh, it's one of the reasons why by by 2001, I was quite happy to move on to another challenge at Erie, is that the politics had become almost all-consuming. My successor, another British scientist, really spent a lot of his time in the international politics of germplasm conservation. Can you give me a flavour of that? What kind of thing was, um, without naming names, but what kind of issues were coming up? Well, at the time, um, if you remember in 1992, the Convention on Biological Diversity came into force, was ratified, came into force. But at the same time, it, it hadn't really covered agricultural biodiversity, which in a sense was the purview of the Food and Agriculture Organization. And in fact, my introduction to the political side was before I actually joined here, I was asked to attend a meeting of the FAO Commission on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture to discuss the policies around the acquisition and access to genetic resources. And of course, this eventually led to a number of agreements placing the international center gene banks under the auspices of FAO. And then, of course, that led to the negotiation and ratification of the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture, the Secretary of which resides within FAO. And this has set the, the, the ground rules for access to the collection, the benefit sharing from the use of the materials in the collection. That's an interesting topic to touch on. So, so how does somebody go about understanding what's there, accessing it? What does that do for rights? Can you tell me a little bit about that side of things? It's, I realise that's a big subject. So. <laughs> the material in the international gene banks is open to anybody and everybody. But obviously, the gene banks aren't able to supply seed in the quantity that a farmer could grow. Okay. I mean, normally the the distribution from the International Rice Research Institute, for example, was 10 grams. That's several hundred seeds, but it's only 10 grams. And if every farmer in the world asked for seeds, there wouldn't be enough seeds to go around. So the idea is that the the seeds would go back to um, the programs from which they came or to other research programs around the world, plant breeders, etc. When when somebody requests material, uh, it's accompanied by a material transfer agreement, which spells out how the material can be used. Now, we could we could talk for hours about whether or not the system is working. Ultimately, it, it aims to bring back the benefits of the use of the germplasm to the countries where um, the material originated. Benefits like what? Three decades ago when I started, people were thinking in terms it would be monetary benefits. But... Obviously, benefits can be in kind. If you get a a new variety that is much more productive and it is provided free of charge, that is also a benefit from the exploitation of germplasm in plant breeding, which has involved perhaps an investment of 10 or 15 years. I mean, the international centers have got major plant breeding programs, and the material that goes out from those programs is free of charge. You know, the benefits are, 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 are the time and the efforts of highly qualified scientists conserving, studying, understanding the genetic diversity 
and then putting it into a package that somebody can grow and ultimately eat. Conserving genetic resources is a long-term proposition and, you know, breeding programs are long-term projects. So that raises a question about who funds the conservation and how do you ensure you get long-term funding for the timeframes that this needs to go on for? I mean, it's it's indefinite, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of the, the biggest paradoxes of you've got a total mismatch of the long-term necessity because we're conserving these materials forever, and the short-term funding windows that funders provide. Now, the international centres have been supported since their uh, foundation by donor governments. So in the case of the UK, that would be the Department for International Development. But we know what was announced just recently, they're going to cut back their support from 0.7 of GDP to 0.5. And we've seen how that is already impacting on research projects that are already underway here in the UK. The Swiss, the Germans, USAID in the States, etc. These all make annual commitments. And over the years, their interest in some cases and their ability to provide funding at the same levels has gone down. A decade ago, a little over a decade ago, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation stepped in and has been providing quite substantial sums of of, of money to support projects in the international centres, not necessarily into the gene banks, but the overall programmes. For many years, the gene banks had to fight, as it were, amongst the other commitments within a centre's programme and budget. So I'm curious, because you said that support for international agricultural research has declined over time. But at the same time, there is a realisation and a much stronger commitment to the idea that climate change is real and it's going to be a major threat for agriculture and we need to do something about it. So how does that reconcile? Do you think gene banks will become more important again? Well, the, the CG itself has been going through many, many years of what I might call navel-gazing as to what their relevance is today. And, and obviously, climate change is, is, is now an important focus of, of the work of the centres. And it's clear that access to and use of the genetic resources in the gene bank is going to be a very important component of any um, response to climate change and adaptation to climate change to be able to provide the genetic diversity that plant breeders are going to need to increase productivity, produce new varieties, etc. What has changed in the funding situation and, and really is very important for the gene banks came uh, some time ago with the founding of the Crop Trust. And they have also taken over a responsibility for managing what is called the gene bank platform among the centres. And they provide substantial funding for, I think, all but two of the gene banks. Erie was the first gene bank to receive a grant in perpetuity. Oh, so there is some long-term funding arrangements now. But it's not 100%. Mm-hmm. You've got a long-term programmatic commitment and you've got short-term funding commitments in general. Certainly, the role of the Crop Trust has become one of the major developments in recent years. And it's estimated that they need an endowment fund of about $500 million 
to provide annually the amount of money to run the international gene banks. But the international collections in the CG gene banks rely not on national government funds like, say, the, the Vegetable Gene Bank in the UK. That is a national commitment. The international gene banks need that broader support. And if that support is found wanting, it has serious implications. You had this long career where you were actively involved in gene bank operations, politics, funding, all the many other aspects of this kind of work. And then the final role in your career was director of program planning and communications, which is quite a different orientation. So can you tell me about that? Out of the blue in early 2001, I had a phone call from the the secretary of the director general asking me to come over for a chat. And uh, I was a bit surprised when I walked into his office there with the other directors, uh, deputy directors general. Uh, And they sat me down. They said, we'd like you to give up the gene bank and we'd like you to join the senior management team to help us revamp our whole funding strategy. Uh, I, I always remember the director general saying, he said, he said, if a donor came to me tomorrow and offered us $5 million, I wouldn't want to refuse it. He said, I have no idea how it would impact our program, where we would put it, how we would spend it. He said, we need somebody who can bring some order to what is essentially a funding chaos. And then by that time, the institute had unfortunately got rather a poor reputation amongst the donors for not ever reporting back on how they had spent all this taxpayer's money. Funnily enough, running an office like that was not too dissimilar from running a gene bank. A gene bank has lots of different elements to it. You've got field operations, regeneration, multiplication, seed cleaning, seed conservation, etc. The success is bringing those together to operate seamlessly with people involved talking to each other, and you have a gene bank that operates efficiently. In my role as director for program planning, we had lots and lots of projects. I discovered there were 60 projects. Mm -hmm. These were my gene bank accessions, and each of those had a lot of information around them that was not brought together. It wasn't integrated, and it wasn't integrated internally between scientists and the finance office. It wasn't integrated with what the the donors understood. And of course, there were no mechanisms, exchange of information internally and externally. And that was the task I was given. And we set up uh, a system within the Institute that eventually got us up to, well, within a relatively short time, within nine or 10 months, we'd restored our reputation with the with the donors. And by the time I left the Institute in 2010, our donor income was approaching 60 million. So you left it in good shape. I like to think that I left the gene bank in better shape than I found it. And I certainly left the the, the, the funding situation and the management of the funding situation in a better shape than I, than I found it. And, and that's the kind of legacy we all want, isn't it? To leave things in a better, in a better state than when we found them. <laughs> so you've had this you know, fabulously rich and varied career in genetic resource conservation across multiple crops and multiple countries. And standing where you are now, 
I'm curious, what concerns do you have for the future and what opportunities do you see for the future for people who are taking things on from here? The, the most important thing about genetic resources conservation, the first, the most important thing that you have to take on board is that the germplasm has to be safe. In a lot of gene banks around the world, that is not the case. Not enough attention is given to how it can be safely conserved, safely regenerated, and all of those. So that is the number one thing that has to be done. Make the germplasm safe. Make sure that the the data that accompanies that germplasm is reliable. And again, there are many deficiencies, not just the theory, but worldwide in, in the quality of data. But the big opportunities that you know, I'm just getting into is the application of molecular biology and particularly genomics to understand the diversity that exists in the collections. That, to me, was almost the holy grail. Now we have the tools and we can afford them. And in fact, that work has already you know, been going on for quite a number of years at Erie and in many gene banks around the world. You know, our understanding of the genetic diversity and, and where the, the hotspots say for disease resistance and the varieties that can be, etc. you know, that has just multiplied in a way that we couldn't have imagined a decade ago. And that is the really exciting bit. Questions we can ask now, we could only imagine a couple of decades ago. You know, there is this need to preserve the resources, make sure you understand what's in those collections. But if that's done correctly, the opportunity to use those collections productively is vastly improved as a result. When I was applying to Erie and I went for interview, I, I did actually lay down one condition to accept a job there. And that was they had to let me have a research program because in, in the initial advert, it was just as it were, a managerial role. I said, no, no, we're not just maintaining a stamp collection, you know, just putting things and taking things out. We have to understand what's there. We've got to make it a living collection in an area which we call pre-breeding. You then make that information available to breeders who can say, well, I can use that, I can't use that, or what are the chances of using particular, and adding that into our complete range of knowledge about the material in the collection. It's been so interesting talking to you today. Um, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Mike Jackson. You're welcome. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore int. Until next time, stay well.